December the 8th, uh, 2013, lecture discussion number 135 on the book of Romans. And just quickly, to, uh, before I get really started here, a couple of things. Uh, one thing, I was watching some music contest show, which I do every now and then, and, um, um, and they had Ada Ruth Habershon's song. Um, yes, uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? I think she wrote it in the early 1900s. I don't know for sure, but it's a very complex song. And they're singing it. And of course, they don't know who wrote it on national TV. They don't know who wrote it, and they did not. Uh, they, that's the sad thing. I did not know that Ada Ruth Habershon wrote that song. But I knew who Ada Ruth Habershon is. Ada Ruth Habershon, uh, one of the great women theologians of all of history. And, and I would say, um, she's, uh, I don't know of one that had the wisdom that this woman had. And she wrote all kinds of hymns. And she wrote a spectacular one, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And no one knows the other verses to it. No one knows who she is. They're all arguing over whether or not the words were right. No, go find out what this woman wrote. She did more deep thinking at 19 than I have done my whole life. I've just been stunned by her. And we used to give away her books all the time. And then I found out she wrote that song, which gave it all the more meaning to me. But I just wanted to say that. Okay. Just start there. Just I just need to make sure people know who Ada Ruth Habershon is. Notice how I put that. As everyone is aware, or to be more precise... As some of you may remember, there's a big difference. We've ended up at 1 Kings 13, and there's a progression here. We are at 1 Kings 13 uh, because of Psalm 22. I'm going in reverse order. We got to Psalm 22 because of Romans 5. That's our progression. Specifically, uh, 12 through 15. Romans 5, 12 through 15. So, First Kings 13, because of Psalm 22, Psalm 22 came to the forefront because of the mortagenic factor that is discussed at Romans 5, 12 through 15. Or if you want to think of it this way, I prefer mortagenic factor, but uh, that's Arthur C. Custance. But uh, the death generation element uh, is uh, certainly as, as uh, a good a way of saying it or thinking about it. The death generation element that is in all of us is ubiquitous. I mean, by that I mean it's universal in the physical creation. It's in the animal kingdom as well as us. And whenever you're in a discussion, and that's First Kings 13 through Psalm 22 because of Romans 5, 12 through 15. Whenever you're in a generation, I'm sorry, in a discussion of the death generator or the death generation element or the mortagenic factor, you've got to say why. Why do we have death? Uh, how do we have it, and when did it occur? And it must be explained. That's as central to our condition, is the explanation, the why, the how, and the when uh, of uh, the death generation factor. And we all age and we all decay over time. Time, very important there. That there's a time element involved. A replication error, if you will, that occurs over constant uh, regeneration that is uh, flawed. How did this flaw get introduced? Why do we have this natural decay that results in the eventual physical death of our bodies? How does this happen and why? Something has caused it. Something is causing that generation. 
And what has mankind been doing for thousands of years? Looking for the something. Searched thousands of years for the inhibitor. Something, a restraint. Something that would stop this inevitable march that is physical death. And now, if anyone is successful in finding it, we are narrowing it down. It's one of the advents of computers now that we are able to uh, extrapolate and we are able to, to multiply our, our energies and remember the memory aspect of it, the storage of information, very, very important uh, now, and the recovery of it. So somebody in one part of the world can be working on something, communicate with somebody in the other part of the world and exchange immediately. And that is, that is causing the search for the something that is the inhibitor, uh, that is the restrainer um, on death generation to start to surface now. And in one time it was successful for sure. In the Bible, uh, Scripture says that Sodom was uh, one such place in history, post-flood. Uh, Ezekiel 16, that had, had made significant inroads into impeding the rate or the acceleration of decay with result to physical death. And obviously God uh, intervened. He stopped them. What they were doing was harvesting cells. We're doing that now. And God destroyed Sodom's laboratory and he ended those experiments and all of their depravity. When I say all, I mean all of it. But remember, one of the issues for them was uh, uh, probably, uh, well, unquestionably, the central issue is they had solved almost all of the curse they were, they had massive amounts of food. They had idle time. They had eliminated all kinds of issues that they were well on their way to solving physical death by means of decay. And I bring this up again. Why? Why do I do it? You say, oh, you're just weird. No. Yes. I bring it up today because somebody is really close. And who would you think it is? The Israelis, that's right. The Israelis have discovered a substance that they believe will fend off aging. That will be amazing. And I'm not surprised. I've been saying it for 15 years that I thought this might be the hook of Ezekiel 38. And I knew that verse, Christ says, as in the time of... Noah, so shall the end of the age of the Gentiles be. Anyway, Hebrew University researchers are believing that they found a defense mechanism against the mortogenic factor. A delay, if you will. It's the first time that pharmacological means or tools have been found that delay the aging process, at least that we know of. Again, I think Sodom did it. I don't know that they did it with a drug. But Hebrew University researchers think that they may, in fact, have found it. Now, let's just go on with this. Let's assume the hypothesis. For a moment, imagine if the Israelis are now indeed able to extend the lifespan of humans. Let's just say they can triple it. And they can do it with a drug. They develop a pharmacological drug system that will inhibit, restrain, constrain, whatever words you wish, the aging process. What do they have? 
First thing you should note is they have a military weapon. The first thing that we need to realize is the military. By the way, whenever anything like this is developed, the first people people who look at it do the military. And this be given, can we get a military advantage out of this? But let's just set that aside. Let's say that with a drug, Israel has the capacity to extend the average age to 240 years. They triple it. And let's say that the vitality is extended to 200 years. So that you have the vitality of a 30-year-old all the way to age 200. Or say maybe a 50 at the worst. So you have the capacity, the mental and physical capacity of a 50-year-old all the way to age 200. Who wants that? Who would attack Israel to secure it? Who would recognize immediately that it's a military weapon and would go after it? And what would they hurry? They absolutely would hurry. See, what, what, think about what would result. What would imagine if one country, just, just imagine, I'm sorry, I said that badly. Just imagine if one country had lifespans and vitality over 200 years. And now let's just say that they sell it or they trade it. How valuable is it? What can they get for it? What does it do to the monetary system if you have this? Imagine, uh, just for a second, that they give it to two countries or three or maybe four countries. Four countries now have the capacity to extend lifespans to 200 years. Who goes to those? What kind of immigration problem do they have now? Who goes there? What scientist in the world now wants to go? Everyone. What about the people with money? But their money becomes less and less valuable. One country with this could destroy the economic system. Once you begin to think about it, they have something that everybody wants. The chaos would be extraordinary. There would be war immediately. Either get the drug or stop your enemy from getting the drug. What would happen if your scientific military capability has no death factor in any of the researchers and the other guys does? What happens in 20 years, 30 years? I keep the same guys. You're changing. You have to relearn. I don't as a country. The chaos again would be unimaginable, but just for fun. I don't think that's what would happen. I think the inverse to scarcity or selectivity would happen. Imagine if the Israelis attained the capacity and they give everyone in the world a lifespan of 240 years. Not only do they give it to humanity, but they give it to animals. Your animals begin to live. What would that do? By the way, what would be their motive for doing it? Israel. They are, no one is more hated than Israel. Would they do it in order to get the, the world to love them? I, I think of Dennis Prager. I, I listen to Dennis, as you know. Sometimes uh, he and I are feuding. He never knows it. I'm not 
totally. You know, he just um, bless his heart. He's a deep thinker, but uh, he has a, a wonderful. Um, but he should stay away from theology. I know he thinks otherwise. Um, he has this wonderful little thing. As you know, the Washington Redskins—they're trying to change their names because they think it's offensive, and um, that's uh, what people who like to control other people do: is they change as much as they can. It's just part of how they operate. Uh, I am not interested in controlling you, as is obvious. But anyway, Mr. Prager said, well, I have an idea. Let's change the name from the Redskins to the Jews. He thought that would be fantastic. Then he could go to a stadium somewhere in the world where the entire stadium is screaming, go Jews, go, we love the Jews. Cheering for the Jews. It's never happened in all of history. Absolutely right. So with the Jews, knowing how hated they are, and by the way, that is a spiritual issue. You have to say, answer that question too. Why does everyone want to exterminate the Jews? It is directly related to the mortogenic factor, by the way. Both of those questions must be answered. They're, they're intertwined. But what would happen if the Jews, uh, seeking to be appreciated, seeking peace for themselves, traded a drug? I think they would reason that it wouldn't matter, but but let's say they, they gave it to the entire world. What would happen then? How much food do we need now? There is no death by aging for hundreds of years. From today, no one dies of old age for 200 years, starting Monday. What would happen? What is the limit to the research institute if its staff maintains its physical prime and mental acuity for 175 years? How fast would we advance? And all advancements, as you know, are not necessarily uh, beneficial. Weapon system would be far more devastating, especially biological and chemical. But death by aging would be slow. Death by force then would step into the vacuum. Evil men would be evil for longer periods. Evil men would therefore become more so expert at being evil. For now, physical death ends the evil plans of the, of, of the most wicked. So slowing or removing physical death or decay is not to be sought. To do so is going to cause an explosion of iniquity. Genesis 3.17 Cursed is the ground for your sake. The curse that we think is death uh, is for our sake. So watch Israel. They're going to show us the end of the age of the Gentiles. If they come up with the ability to extend lifespan, war will start immediately. And that war will be Ezekiel 38. Knowing that it's near is critical, crucial wisdom. It's the wisdom that brings peace and understanding. If they come up with an anti-aging pill tomorrow, what am I going to do? That's right. I'm going to start popping popcorn. Turn on the big screen TV and let's, this is going to be a wild ride. Okay. That was just for fun. Where did we leave off? 
we were sifting or gleaning uh, through the man of God and the old line prophet of First Kings 13, and we got there because of Psalm 22, and we got to Psalm 22 because of Romans 5:12 through 15, because we had to figure out what was going on at the crucifixion. <coughs> That's how we're here. And we're gather as many pieces as possible with the goal uh, uh, being to correctly place those pieces together with other pieces and discover or ascertain whichever what uh, has been placed by God inside this literally true event that is 1 Kings 13. So 1 Kings 13 is literally actually true. Don't ever think it's not. It, all of it is that way in the Bible. In other words, there actually was a Jeroboam. There actually was a man of God, as you know. I thought I, uh, I assigned uh, that uh, uh, Shemaiah to, uh, I think that is who it is. I'll defend that more as we go. But I actually had a lion old prophet with five sons. I actually had two donkeys. I actually had uh, the, the, the altars. I had everything there. Josiah was a real man. So, but God placed something inside this literally true actual event, and we're trying to discover what it was that he put there. In other words, we're doing what we're always told to do, what we always do in the Bible, as Christ himself ordered us to do. This is an order. This is a commandment, a direct order from him to do this. We are searching for that which testifies of Jesus Christ, John 5.39. Do this. We are seeking the revelations of Christ that permeate the Bible. The, the Bible, especially so within the Old Testament, is saturated. It's soaked with revelations of Jesus Christ. And we're ordered to find them. So that's our job. I think of it this way. I'm going to stand in front of the throne and he's going to say, John 5.39, how many did you find? And I'm going to be able to say, hey, I got... I got, a, I, got, I got a lot here. I think that's going to be good. I fear for the people that have none. That's why I brought up Ada Ruth Habershaw. I'm going to go, that lady helped me. I don't know where I'd be without her. And I know she'd point to somebody that helped her. You are going to be held responsible for that commandment in John 5.39. Search the scriptures, find Christ. The Old Testament is saturated, marinated with revelations of Jesus Christ. That's how we can tell it's scripture. If it doesn't have him in there, it's not scripture. And It's been placed there by the Holy Spirit. It's been... And now you have to ask why. Why did the, why is he done it this way? Because he's, he's trying to teach us about the truth of Christ. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. So if you want to look at it this way, our job is to go through this Bible and find the truth. Now, when I say truth, there's truth, all kinds of truth. But Christ is foremost, I, he says, I am the truth. So if you're interested in the truth, you have to find and understand who he is. You have to be able to pass the truth test, if you will. If I ask people who Christ is, do they know? Do they know what who he is, what he said, what it meant, what he did, what it meant, how he thinks, how he operates? 
He's the truth. He says so. I am the truth. Implication? He's the I am. There's only one truth. I am the life. He is the I am. There's only one life. I am the resurrection. He is the I am. (coughs) Excuse me. There's only one resurrection in the sense that he is the only one that resurrects. There is only one truth, only one source of life, obviously only one who resurrects. That's why he ordered us to search the Old Testament to find him. Find Christ, find truth. The more we know about Christ, the more truth we know. Predictably, then, the converse. The less one knows of Christ, the less truth one knows. Now, immediately, I'm going to get emails just by saying that. The physicalists are going to write me. They're not always friendly. But they're going to write, and they're going to say with great confidence that all truth is subject to the arbiter that is the scientific community. So, on one hand, I have Christ. On the other hand, I have the scientific community. Science, in other words, science and, and, and thus the scientists determine truth. The law of physics are these that establish what is true. So let's, let's take the word physics. What does it mean? That's why I call them physicalists. They are focused on the physical reality. Christ is focused on the spiritual reality. So I have, uh, I have this element going on almost immediately. But uh, essentially they say, as you know, all of you know this, the, the, the law of physics establishes the truth, and only the physical reality is true. There is no truth except that which is physical or particle or field, electromagnetic, if you will. We have field theory now, quantum field theory. But uh, all things are particle or field. Physicalists are nothing if not certain that the law of physics or the laws of physics are an impenetrable, impenetrable obstacle to the immortality of the soul. In other words, they will say to you that you cannot survive physical death. Your mind uh, or your soul, I'm starting to say mind now because it uh, it works best against their thought process. But I'll just say whichever, it doesn't matter. But your spirit, soul, mind, they say, uh, is eliminated from surviving physical death because the laws of physics deny the possibility of it. And I'll quote uh, uh, the uh, this gentleman, uh, Sean Carroll. His motto is that he puts underneath his name, in truth, only atoms and the void. Let me repeat his motto. In truth, only atoms and the void. There is no spiritual reality. There's no possibility that there's anything but a physical reality. And physics are the determinable, uh, uh, impenetrable obstacle, if you will, of uh, of any other thought process, especially those of us who believe Scripture and that the soul is immortal which is one of the first things the Bible says. Here's his, here's his quote, Mr. Carroll. The law of physics underlying everyday life are completely understood and there is no way within those laws to allow for the information stored in our brains to persist after physical death. You get that? In other words, the laws of physics are completely understood. 
regarding life. I just immediately go, really? The laws of physics are completely understood. I, I'm stunned by that statement. With respect to life, we have no idea. We have the law of biogenesis, which says law comes or life comes from life. But we can't make life. We can't even describe life. We have no definition of life. The laws of physics are completely understood with respect to life is a contradiction. I submit. Go ahead, write me. I submit that the physical reality is this, is a, is a subset of the spiritual reality. In other words, I, reality, they, I'm going to call that spiritual reality. Inside spiritual reality is a subset of physical reality. You all took the, uh, algebra, right? Sets and subsets. It is not, it is not physical reality. Don't get mad at me, that's seventh grade. <laughs> In other words, they are, they deny the spiritual reality completely and they say this is the only reality. And I'm saying the spiritual reality is the overwhelming reality and the physical is simply inside of it. And we only have a minimal understanding of physical law. Certainly, we do not know how our mind interprets the physical dynamics, the chemical, the electrical dynamics of our brain and assigns meaning, intentionality. Heard me say, talk about this a lot. Particle interaction between the mind and the brain is not understood. The laws of physics have no idea how the mind and the brain, particularly, if I reduce the communication between the mind and the brain to a particle, they have no idea what the particle is or how it works, how information is transferred. Because I have a mind element, I have a brain element, the brain is is electrical and chemical, and the mind element communicates with it. What's the particle that, that transmits that communication? We don't understand that in spite of the quote that I read you. And, and I am really aware of this. Storage of information is not the same as self-awareness. I may have stored the information, but I don't know where it is anymore. And I certainly can't go get it. You and I, us and we, we are not our storage of information. God never calls us that. He calls us living souls. He never calls us a physical storage facility of information. Our personhood, again, our self-awareness, who we think we are, is far more extensive than our experiences and our memories of those experiences. I can prove it to you. You're still you. Name everybody in your third grade class. You're still you. The storage of that information does not define you. I don't remember what I thought or did last month. I am still me. And so his focus, back to his quote, Mr. Carroll's focus, that the storage of information doesn't survive physical death. And somehow that affects my immortality. I don't agree with him on that either, by the way. But clearly, myself, my awareness, is not my memory. Because if it were, I would not function very well. 
Self-awareness versus cognitive capability is what we're talking about here. Uh, try to understand that. Uh, let me put it in this, this frame. How the brain electrically and chemically stores information. This is Wilder Penfeld, by the way. Uh, he was able to go inside uh, epileptics and find the storage facility for memories and replay them almost immediately for people. We'll eventually get to Mr. Penfeld and his brain uh, uh, experimentation. He was a brilliant man who asked uh, brilliant questions at the end of his life. He was stunned by what, uh, how this process worked. The greatest neurosurgeon in Canadian science. Anyway, how the brain electrically and chemically stores information and what information it stores and how the mind then accesses the information and what information the mind stores. I'm going to say the mind is an entity and it has storage capability. For sure it stores the self-awareness aspect. How does the mind get the energy it needs to access? And what energy does it get? What, how, what form is that energy in? Is it in a physical form or is it in a supernatural form? What form, what is the mind made out of? Is the mind made out of a physical or is it made out of a spiritual component? What does the spiritual component look like? Where does it come from? Again, I am saying to you, the physical reality is a subset of the spiritual reality, not the only reality. And by the way, um, what happens to the information? Well, let's go back to the energy. Again, this is Wilder Penfield. What happens to the energy for the mind when the body dies? Is there an alternate source of energy that it can access immediately? And if that's true, where did that energy come from? And what happens to the information in the brain at death? Because it's stored in there. Is that information immediately destroyed at death, as the physicalist says? Can I destroy information? If I can't destroy it, can I retrieve it? What is the retrieval process? Who facilitates that retrieval? Who says, I am the one who stores and retrieves information? I am the one who provides energy. Who says that? No, one person in history says all of that. Who is the resurrection and the life? Who is the truth? That's why we search the scriptures to find Jesus Christ. Because he says things that only God says. We need to know what he says, what it means, and what the implications are to us. Doing so answers all the mysteries of life. So, let's cement a portion of what we've discovered so far. God makes a commandment to the man of God. You remember the commandment? He makes a commandment. He says, Don't eat bread. Don't Drink water. Oh, it's already on here. Don't return the same way you came. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water in this place. So he's 
specified place. Don't drink the water in that place. Don't eat the bread in that place. Don't come, don't leave that place the same way you came into that place. Okay? Remember all of that? Now last week I equated it to Genesis 2.17, where God makes a commandment to another man of God. So I said, I have man of God in 1 Kings, and I have man of God. 1 Kings 13, man of God, man of God, Genesis 2.17. Two men of God. One is called, literally, man of God, because his name is Adama. Adama is Hebrew for what? Means man. Adama of God. Adama of God. I said, 1 Kings 13, 21 through 22 is therefore connected to Genesis 3, 17. Let's, uh, uh, let's read that so you can see it. In case you missed it, it's never the wrong thing to repeat these ones because they're so important. 1 Kings 13, 21. Um, and 22. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed my commandment. He's saying it to the man of God. Because you have disobeyed my commandment and have not kept, disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, you ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So he said, because you disobeyed, you will what? Because you ate and drank in that place, what will happen? You will die physically. Now go back to uh, Genesis 3, 17. And look at what he says to the man of God. He says, then to... Man, he said, or then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the uh, herb uh, or herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Because you heeded the voice. So in both cases, in in 1 Kings 13, the man of God uh, uh, heeds a voice for whatever reason. We've discussed his reasoning already. We'll do it some more. And in Genesis 3:17, the man of God heeds a voice. And both die because they ate. Okay, so two mans of God, both heed a voice, both return to someone who is in a dying state. The deceived woman equates to the old prophet, and both man of gods eat, and both know that physical death will be the result. 
And that's very important. Let me try to put that all in one place for you. I am saying to you that I have two men of gods. I have the first king, 13. I have the Genesis 2 and 3. Okay? Did I grab the wrong pen? I did. I have, I have the heating of a voice. The heated voice in both. I have in both a a um, eating, in both I have bread mentioned, in both I have not deceived. Now I have inferred that by logic in First Kings and by uh, by it's a direct uh, truth of Scripture in First Timothy with regard to Adam. I think it becomes really more obvious when you see them both side by side. Both know that physical death is going to result from the action of disobeying the commandment. By the way, not deceived means full understanding. You have to have full understanding in order to not be deceived. Uh, so, complete, total understanding, if you will. So, if the... If this much equality is here, then I'm going to say to you that the motive is also here. It's the same motive. Both of them are types of Christ. Both of them have this extraordinary title of man of God. Both of them have all of these elements the same. And that means, of course, that I have this, I have, if, if everything is equal, then Eve has to equal the old line prophet, right? They're going to share an equality. And as I said, the willingness to save someone has to be... Oh, and just as an afterthought, I have Satan uh, with regard to Eve. Who is in the Satan figure uh, in First Kings? Uh, The king, Jeroboam. So I have a tremendous amount... Elements that are not just not just related; they almost are identical. So so far, so good, right? So you can assign characteristics that would be present in both man of gods because of the other elements there here, and I think you can do it uh, securely and successfully. Now, we've got that. We have two types, and we must have the third or the fulfillment somewhere. I have all of these elements, don't eat, don't drink, don't return, don't eat, because you heated, not deceived, all of these elements are there, who has to have them? I have to find them in Christ. He has to have them. These are, these are types of Christ. He is the fulfillment, or what's called in doctrinal schools or theological schools, the anti-type. So let's go to Matthew 26. There it is. You could go other ways, but Matthew 26 is probably the easiest. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. I'll read that. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. 
I'm not surprised about that. I have all of the Passover typology. I also have 1 Kings, and I also have uh, Genesis 3, right? Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, it's a commandment from God. What's he say? Eat the bread. It's an absolute contrast to don't eat. Take, eat. This is my body. Well, that's interesting because I have a dead body in 1 Kings 13. God says a direct order to everyone there. He says it to us by inference now, by by extension. Eat, this is my body. Do you obey him or not? It is a commandment. Just as he says, don't eat is a commandment, eat is a commandment. And gave it to the disciples. That's interesting. He didn't charge him for it. Keep that in mind, those of you who think you can earn your bread or your wine. Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. The Bible is perfectly worded every time. There's never a mistake. In its original form, that's a caveat that I have to fight every now and then. Gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, drink drink from it, all of you. All of you drink it. That's an order. Anyone disobey his order. Careful before you answer that. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There's that word many again. Obviously, some are not going to drink it, right? But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there is the fulfillment of these. You'll see it as a contrast, but uh, we'll work our way through that as we go here. Obviously, the poison of Genesis 3 and the poison of 1 Kings 13 is to be placed alongside of the antidote, if you will, or if you wish, the non-poison. Eat the bread, drink the water, what happens to you if you do it in this place? You die. Eat the bread, drink the water, in this place you die. Eat the bread, drink the wine, you live. It's really no more complicated than that. Now, with just that information, we can solve the meaning of the commandment of 1 Kings 13.9. We know that commandment has a relationship that is the opposite, or contrast, complete opposite, of the communion. And we know what the communion is now, don't we? Or we should. And again, make no mistake, it is also a direct order, Matthew 26. It's a commandment. So I'm now comparing commandments, and I can figure out the meaning of the opposite commandment by figuring out the commandment that is Matthew 26 through 29. We know what the bread represents in Matthew 26, 29. What does it represent? It represents his body. We know what the wine represents. It is his blood. So now you can take that and go, if, the, if Matthew 26, the commandment to eat is body of Christ, but if we put it this way, it is the body of God, 
and the blood of God. God says, eat my body, drink my blood, and you will live. Don't eat the, the bread and don't drink the water in this place or you will die. Don't eat from the tree or you will die, surely. But do eat this representation, do drink this representation, and you will live. Obey this, live, disobey that, die. Disobey this, die. That all makes sense to you? Hope so. So, if it's God's body and God's blood, and that's what it represents, then what does the bread and the water represent in 1 Kings 13, 8 through 9? What is the this place? What does this place represent? And why is it there? If it's not God's body and God's blood, it is therefore the opposite of it. It's a counterfeit, isn't it? So, how is that the case? Now, let's add another piece. Gonna get more complicated. So far we have gotten through the easy part. How do you feel? Good. Luke five twelve to fourteen. We're gonna take on the do not return the same place element here. Are we going to get through it today? No, but you'll be fine because you'll have it. And some of you are doing really good. You come up to me afterwards and you uh, tell me what you figured out. And, and you, you, you're ready, um, some of you are, to just start flying. It's amazing. Okay, Luke 5.12. And it happened. When he was in a certain city, and behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest. This is your Leviticus 14 sense of humor aspect of God. Please go go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as testimony to them. In other words, go show the priest that just cleaned your leprosy out instantly. And now they've got to find two birds and and an earthen vessel and running water, and they've got to do this ceremony. They have no idea what it is, and they've never done one before, because no one has ever done what I just did. And he does it thousands of times, and they all go back to the priesthood, and they all have to have this ritual of Leviticus 14 performed. And they get their stuff back. That's another aspect to it. You know all about that. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes... How great is a multitude? Not just a multitude, it's a great multitude 
came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Word God, he said, tell no one. What's the obvious question? Don't tell anybody. What did the leper do? He told everybody. He didn't need to. He's wandering around with no leprosy. And what happened when the word got out? Everybody came. Everybody. By the way, the aged came. Everybody came. And he healed everything of everybody. And it was a great multitude. Tens of thousands. Now, who can do that? So if you ask yourself, are the Jews the first ones to come up with the aging restraint process? No. They're not. And it was done to everyone. Every infirmity, every leprosy, every missing limb, every amputee, Every blind, every eye missing, every everything was healed. But he said, tell no one. Who is he? He's an omniscient God. Did he know that the leper was going to tell everybody he would run vegan vine? Of course he did. So why does he say, tell no one? I'll read you what my commentator says. I'll try to do it with a straight face. Okay, uh, um, hang on, I, I have the wrong place. I have to go to Matthew to do it. Anyway, my commentator said, uh, uh, he's saying, uh, well, it even tells me where it is, Matthew 8, 4. I'll, I'll run, I'll read it so I don't misrepresent him because he's still alive and he would write and sue me also. Let's try to, okay, I, I wrote over it. You've got to be kidding Really, this is what you got here? This is what this particular commentator, who will remain nameless, but uh, his initials, never mind. I won't do that. Tell no one. Publicity over such miracles, this commentator says, might hinder Christ's mission. Can you hinder Christ's mission? What are you thinking? Publicity over such miracles might hinder, might hinder, I can't even read it. This is omniscient God, and divert public attention from his message. Let the record show that I'm hitting myself in the forehead again. Mark records that this is, I wrote things over that this is precisely what happened in this man's exuberance over the miracle he disobeyed as a result Christ was overwhelmed by people he didn't know were coming and he had to move his ministry away from the city and run because of all the people coming uh, obviously that can't be the case that's not true when you read stuff like that, you have to just, just, you know, just do a, a little tiny bit of critical thinking. Hand it to a six or seven year old and have them respond. Okay. Matthew 12, 14 through 21. Then the Pharisees, 
Do I have this right? Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew, duh, he's omniscient, he withdrew from there. Okay, that's interesting. He tells one to don't tell anybody, and he withdraws in another place. We are solving, remember, to don't return the same way. What could possibly be uh, the reason that God says to the leper, don't tell anybody what I did, knowing full well that in 20 minutes the whole city is going to empty? Why would he say to that man, don't tell anybody? And great multitudes followed him. Now, I have more than one multitude. I have great, I have plural multitudes. And he healed them all. Maybe 50,000. This has been done before. Oral Roberts doing this. Come on. Stop it. He healed them all, yet he warned them not to make him known. Whoa! It's a warning. Warning. Danger, Will Robinson. Don't make me known. That's a warning. Why would he do it? Well, it tells you that it might fulfill which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. That's why he warned them not to tell anybody. Does that make sense? Got it? Okay, move on. This is why you have to come next week. From just these two, we get tell no one. Why? And a warning. Christ is in a, he's in a, no other way to term it, he's the prophet had a wonderful uh, discussion yesterday from Jeffrey. Where's Jeffrey from? Pennsylvania? Jeffrey from Pennsylvania. He was trying to decide when the, exactly the prophet phase of Christ ended, or what you could also, if you will, call the hidden phase. When did the hidden phase end? He knew it had to be on the cross for sure uh, at some point because uh, Christ says it is finished, and that is a... That is a high priest term. And we know it ended before, uh, or that he's in the high priest when he's talking to Mary and he says, don't touch me. That's a high priest element there. And then he tells Thomas a couple of verses later, almost immediately, go ahead and touch me. Because he had performed the high priest task of cleansing the altar. I am completely out of time. You can tell because the musicians have charged the, st- the pulpit. But from both of those you get Tell no one and the warning element. And that needs to be explained. We'll do that next week. Why does he disguise himself? Why is he not to be recognized? We have that in Josiah. Why does God warn? What's the purpose and the meaning of the warning? How does Isaiah fulfill the warning? Because as you know, nothing can stop God's plan. How is it possible for an omnipresent God to withdraw? And then we take on next week the mystery of the two donkeys. 
Know this about the two donkeys. It's in Matthew 21, it's in Mark 11, it's in Luke 19, and it's in John 12. All four Gospels have the mystery of the two donkeys. And next week, we'll take care of that. Rise and be dismissed. Will the musicians please come forward? Yay! Look how fast they are.